Hey, John. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Shane. I appreciate the invitation and really happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, you've written a really wonderful book. It's called The Synchronicity of Love, and it's about many things, but no less than uh, your personal transformation uh, from you know hopeless despair, let's say, and uh, mm -hmm. trapped in fear to opening up your heart to love and the unconditional love forces, you might say, and uh, it's really beautiful. And I recommend everyone to purchase it and uh, read that story. It, it's really great. Um, so how about we get started with just, you know, a, a brief rendition of, of your story that, that uh, led you to this point? Yeah, so um, thank you. Thank you for that nice intro, by the way. <laughs> um, so about 20 years ago, I was living what I would call a relatively charmed life. And uh, suddenly seemed like practically overnight, everything that could go wrong went wrong at the same time. And my wife, who had been young and healthy, uh, took good care of herself, got cancer and it came completely out of left field. She was only in her 30s. And two weeks after she was diagnosed with cancer, they did surgery and removed her entire thyroid glands and a bunch of lymph nodes. And had to go through multiple rounds of uh, radioactive iodine treatments. It's kind of like their uh, chemotherapy for um, that type of surgery. Yeah. And, um, and uh, to this day, she has to take a pill every day for the rest of her life just to live. And it, it started to change her. And she started to go quietly inward, started to kind of review her own life. And who am I? What do I want out of life? Am I happy in this life? And uh, as that was going on, and mind you, at that time, I didn't consider myself spiritual, maybe wasn't the best listener either. So I'm not sure I even knew how to support her during that journey inward, where she's reading books mm -hmm. about God and the meaning of life. And, and then at the same time, I left my very secure job, where I was a rock star, started my own company and promptly lost all of our money, and a whole bunch more uh, to the tune of 650000 uh, 650,000 personal debt, a quarter million in credit card debt, and was running around in unbelievable fear. Like I just, every day was one day from declaring bankruptcy. And in the middle of it all, my wife says, I'm going to leave. You take the kids. You're the better parent. Uh, I want a whole new life and leave. So wow. <laughs> and then on top of that, um, I don't know where this came from. This unbelievable fear of death came over me, hmm. like overwhelming fear of death. And I hadn't confronted or considered death before up to that point. Um, I had not been religious. I had not been spiritual. And so I kind of associated the body with death. And so if the body died, that meant that I died. And that meant that it was over. And I couldn't wrap my head around oblivion or forever. And it was terrifying to me. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. And I'm not sure I would have even been brave enough to talk to anybody about it. So in the blink of an eye, I felt like um, I went from you know, that relatively charm life to being a bad husband, bad dad, bad businessman, and a man running around behind closed doors, terrified of death. Hmm. And that began my journey. And I, I don't know why it is a lot of people, it seems like, here comes the hell and alongside the hell comes the great transformation. Yeah, well, certainly, as they say, when it rains, it pours. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. you no wonder I live in Seattle. Way. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. It's true. And it so often, you know, the liberation comes through the suffering. Yeah. Right. And uh, unfortunately, we often have to go through that suffering 
in order to get the benefit uh, from the other side. And I mean, I think colloquially, most people have some sense of like, you know, uh, the best things come through the greatest challenge. Yeah. Right? Nothing that comes easy is as good as when it comes through intense challenge and yeah. uh, suffering, we may call it, but it doesn't always have to be that way. It's just difficulty. Um, and so, so what happened? How did you find well, your wanna, way? Yeah. So um, for somebody who considered himself devoutly anti-spiritual and didn't go to church, I was very enamored with Michael Crichton's book, uh, Travels. Mm-hmm. Michael Crichton was a best-selling author, movie maker, TV show, and all of his books tended to be cutting-edge science sci-fi type books. Not yeah. all, but most of them. Uh, but a lot of people don't know he wrote an autobiography called Travels, and it's a wonderful book. I love that book. And there was a chapter in there about he finally broke down and went to his first ever spiritual retreat. And, um, and it was because he'd made a conscious decision in his 30s that he was going to go directly experience everything he'd only read about or heard about and decide for himself, you know, he wasn't going to just take the books and opinions of others. And one of them was spirituality, he started exploring psychic phenomena, meditation, all sorts of things. And I loved that philosophy. I love that lifestyle. And yeah. um so for somebody who was devoutly anti-spiritual, I read the, the journal and notes he took from that two-week retreat out in the desert, and I loved it. And for somebody mm. who was anti-spiritual, I must have read that story a hundred times, Shane. And then, of course, when I was at absolute rock bottom, I remember laying on my bed, reading that story again. Ah, oh, screw it. I wonder if this guy who led that retreat is even still alive anymore, because Michael Crichton went in 1982. Hmm. And so here it is, 2002, I run to my computer, I go on the website, I type in the retreat leader's name is uh, Dr. William Brew Joy, and he goes by his middle name, Brew, and there he is, alive and well on the website, still teaching retreats, and in fact, he calls it his foundational conference, it looks like the exact same one that Michael Crichton went to 20 years earlier, I signed up right on the spot, and I said, you know, two or three thousand dollars won't matter in the end if I go bankrupt, so I'll just throw this on the credit card too. Yeah. But what I was looking for was a lifeline. And I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew I somehow I knew I needed to shake myself up. I had dug myself into a hole uh, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and I needed to um, see the world differently. I needed to see my life differently. I'm not sure I was even conscious of it at the time. Something in me knew I needed to go do this. You and needed to grab onto something. Yeah. And, and on the website, he said these, these retreats are typically, he called them life renovating. And I went, oh, I think I need some life renovation. Yeah. <laughs> My house has been destroyed. I need to rebuild it differently. Yeah. And, and the synchronicities began almost the minute I signed up for that. Um, I signed up at the last minute and I want to say it was within a few weeks, I'm on a plane flying to Southern California. The retreat was in the San Bernardino Mountains, high, what they call the high desert up in the mountains. And as the plane touched down in Ontario, California, I noticed the woman next to me is reading Brew's book. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, you know, what are the?" And again, I have a really good math mind, a businessman yeah. and everything, just probabilities have been a big part of my life. And I'm like, what are the chances? And I counted. I look back. There was 180 people on the plane. And the only two people going to the retreat, me and her sitting side by side. And, and she's reading the book. And I'm like, are you going to that retreat with Brew? And she goes, yeah, I'm really nervous. I go, well, me too. <laughs> well, you look normal. Well, you look normal too. Okay, I guess maybe this is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. 
it's not going like to be a I, retreat of you know just crazies yeah well and so there was a lot of fear about that and i didn't have at that retreat a lot of wild and crazy and dramatic spiritual experiences but shane what i discovered was i didn't realize how much i'd kept people at a distance my whole life and it was mm. the first time i felt that sort of shared vulnerable intimacy with other people. And I realized I craved it and yeah. um, it was beautiful. And I, I remember coming home after the retreat, just thinking like, I'm changed. My life has changed. Everything's so great. And it was like a little bit, I don't know if you've done meditation retreats. Sometimes there's a little bit of re-entry into the quote unquote real world afterwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I still had my business that was hanging by a thread. I still had, you know, custody of my kids. And so, yeah, that was, nobody warned me about re-entry. Yeah. <laughs> um, you kind of move from this phase of like euphoria from the retreat back into the real world. And you're like, uh Oh yeah. How do I not go back to exactly the same thing? Uh, I, and I kept trying to seek out that same intimacy with other people, but you know, I, I had a lot to learn about the, you know, the sanctity and safety, safety of a space like that and how people relax and open up but they're mm -hmm. not that way, generally, not that way day in and day out at work and things like that. So, um, so that's, mm. that's really how everything began. And then, uh, before you carry on, yeah, I, yeah. what, what's amazing to me is, you know, and I think we'll talk a lot about synchronicity here is that right. in that, in that time, right. Of your, your dark hour, um, when you were at rock bottom, as you say, something drew you to that book, right? right? And uh, more than that, you read the story and you couldn't stop reading it, right? Right, And it was just this cascade of events that was just remarkably exactly what you needed, right? Exactly. And as you say, with a probability-based mind, you're like, what are the chances? Or you might've said, as many people do, it was just chance, right? It's just an accident that this happened the way it did. Yeah. Uh, but the sort of more you open up to the possibility of it not being chance and that it's actually uh, meant to be in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the synchronicity is. is, is it's an event that's connected um, beyond our comprehension, perhaps, right. is one way of thinking about it, uh, but connected nonetheless, not random. And so it, it's just fascinating. It's always fascinating to me, like, why we're so interested in the things that we're interested in and what grabs our attention at the right time. And how come you can read a book today and you're like, yeah, it was fine. And you put it back on the shelf. And then like five years later, you're like, Hmm, I think I should read that, that book again. Something's just calling me to read it. And all of a sudden you have this, this big revelation or something just grabs you in and says, this is what you need right now. This is that piece of wisdom that you've yeah. been looking for. And you know, it, it's really hard to make sense of that unless you are willing to, in some regard, have faith that this is the right thing for you to do. Yeah. No, you you nailed it. Um, I, I've had that book experience like you've described so many times. I can't tell many times I've ordered a book from Amazon and it arrives. And I look at it and go, I don't know why it doesn't look that interesting. And it sits on the <laughs> shelf, like you said, for six months or five years. And then I pull it down. It's like, Oh my God, this is the best book ever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, desire is a really funny thing. I, there, you could do, you know, 10 hour podcasts on just desire. And yeah. 
because there's so many types of desire. But I think that sort of digging down deep and what is it that's calling you is so important to pay attention to. But sometimes for some people, I think it's hard to sift my desire, my deepest desire from maybe desires I picked up from my culture, my Mm. community, my church, my family, my upbringing, my school, my parents. And so trying to weed around, you know, uh, weed out other people's desires and how they might impact me and getting close to my core desire. Cause I, I preach desire all the time to people, you know, there's a, it's kind of a cliche thing, follow your bliss, but um, you know, Joseph Campbell followed his bliss for, I think five years during the great depression. Mm-hmm. And Hey, you know, I think, I think if I remember uh, well, anyway, he barely got by, like no income at all, but devoured every book he could find on the planet on mythology. And a lot of people probably thought he was crazy, like, you know, hanging on by a thread during the Great Depression. He spends five years reading books on mythology and but later becomes one of, if not the leading experts in the field of mythology and a really respected professor at Sarah Lawrence University. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, you might have seen the. Um, uh, the graduation, um, oh, I forget what they call it, uh, commencement speech that Steve Jobs did at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how he, his parents, you know, he was adopted. His parents didn't have a lot of money and they sent him to a private school. And he realized if he stayed there for four years, his parents were going to be bankrupt. And uh, so he dropped out after six months, but he hung around and he said, I started taking auditing classes. You know, I wasn't going to get any credit, but I started taking the classes I want to take instead of the classes I had to take. Yeah. And, um, and the class that he took on calligraphy, which he just loved later turned out to be the very thing that put the Apple Macintosh, uh, you know, front and center, you know, I mean, the first computer to offer lots of different fonts. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, coming back to tying in synchronicity and like when you're really in kind of the pit of hell, sometimes when you're doing that one thing that really calls you, you don't realize how it's going to play out later in life. Sometimes you don't realize we're in the, you're in the pit of hell, how wonderfully transformative it is. And it's sometimes only in retrospect that you can look back and go, Oh my God, everything was perfect. Yeah. It's exactly how it was supposed to be. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard, if not impossible to see it at the time, right? Especially if you're consumed with the pain that you're going through and the challenge it's hard. And, especially if it's a, a plan, let's say that's bigger than what you're seeing right now, because you, we don't get to have that omniscience, uh, of seeing the future and how things play out. But I think that that's where a level of faith comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Especially once you're open to these kinds of, uh, think this way of thinking and being is that you don't have to know, but you just have to trust that this is right. Right. Even if it sucks. Right. You just, you just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and it does suck, right? Like there's no getting yeah. out of that. Right. Yeah. It's like, they re- there's a reason they call it like hell and the yeah. darkness and the dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it, um, is because it, man, it sucks so much, but often people look back on those things and say, that was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know? Yeah. And what happened to me 20 years ago was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. <clears throat> but you wouldn't have thought so at the time. Oh, absolutely not. And I, I think the scary thing is when you're in things like this, uh, at least for me, if you're kind of a control freak like me, you don't know how they're going to play out. 
Yeah. You know, and so I I could just as easily have gone bankrupt and had to, you know, move somewhere, some low rent place, you know, I don't know, figure out how to start all over bankrupt, uproot my kids, put them in a new school district, you know. And and maybe that would have turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me too. Um, as it turned out, that didn't happen. But um, yeah, I think I think trust becomes a big part of the journey. And I think yeah. it's one way to surf the waves or the lack of waves when you're in that dark night. If you can just have the faith, like I don't know how this is all going to play out, but I do have faith that it's uh, it's going to be for my best and highest evolution. Yeah. And, it, and and that's really not a message that we experience in our culture, except in yeah. religious and sometimes <laughs> spiritual circles. And in the Western culture, that's near non-existent, right? Yeah. And uh, it's such a shame. And I mean, I've been through that myself, right? And I contend regularly with myself about faith in terms of just yeah. like, you, you kind of, your rational reasoning mind goes, yeah, but that's silly, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's silly. Like you need to plan stuff. You need to know, you need to have facts. You need to, or probability at least to be like, how do I give myself the best chance of this working out? And then the opposite approach of being like, it'll all be fine. Um, is really hard to contend with, but you actually can integrate those two things, right? You, you can work with your reason and your rationality and still do whatever you think is best. And, uh, try your hardest and do the work and do whatever is needed, but still have it in the background that um, this is for my highest good, let's say. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think you just nailed my my bipolar reality, Shane. So yeah, <laughs> the flitting back and forth between, I call it the, the curmudgeonly know-it-all, who's very rooted in logic and facts. Yeah. And, and the part of me that's very open and expansive and um, they can be integrated. They each have their own role, but it can be a struggle. And I, there's a spiritual teacher I love named Tom Kenyon, who's a sound healer and world renowned. And, you know, when he does this work, hundreds of people show up, um, but he's got a brilliant intellect too. And has done a lot of interesting brain research um, around the effects of sound on the brain. I think mm -hmm. he founded acoustic brain research and uh, but I love him because he, he said many times, you know, he, he's, that guy is cracked wide open. And, but at the same time he goes, yeah, man, I spend my many hours marooned on the Island of logic as he puts it. <laughs> it's like, I'm with you, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. We get stuck there. Right. Yeah. And the, the faith doesn't come from the mind. Right. Uh, I mean, loosely speaking, it comes from the heart. Right. Yeah. Uh, physiologically, it's a little bit more complicated than that, I would think. But yeah. uh, that's why they talk about, you know, you love with your heart. It comes from your heart center. It's a heart based approach is it's I think the message and I think actually people really feel it in their chest region, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and there's interesting research on why that is. I mean, we have various kinds of um, neural connections in our heart, not neural uh I can't remember exactly what it is, but some kind of like it's connected to your brain, right? And so you can, your heart can be in coherence with your brain, as they say. Right. Uh, so there is science to it at the moment. Uh, it's just emerging and blossoming, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, <laughs> but it's fascinating to have that approach. And uh, we're a very logic mind oriented society. 
right? Where it's all about thinking and less about feeling, but it's not feeling like, I don't think it's feeling as emotional feeling that has its own place too, mm -hmm. right? But it, it's more this like soul feeling, spiritual. Yeah. It, it, it's an essence that's, that's separate from that. Um, is that your experience of it as well? Yeah, I think you described it really beautifully. Um, I, I like to just call it um, separate from the emotions. It's a subtle sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like uh, intuition is different from feeling. Uh, and yet they're kind of the same. And yet they're kind of different. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, an emotion might be anger or grief. Um, um, but when you're in anger or grief, I don't think you can access, at least most people I know, myself included, it's hard to access that subtle sensitivity that feels like intuition. Mm -hmm. It feels like you put it, essence. And so, um, you know, language because it's is overwhelming, right? Yeah. The emotion language is, is too strong. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. I say language is so inadequate to describe yeah. some of these things. Some of these things, like you just know it. But it's uh, language is an inadequate vehicle. And I think, honestly, if the whole world um, spoke telepathically with that subtle sensitivity of feeling, we would all get it. But we try yeah. to describe in words and, and words are, in my opinion, inadequate to describe. You Definitely. Know, and that's why you know, people use a lot of imagery, right, right, when they talk about these things. And that's why yeah. poetry and prosaic language has been the medium for communicating uh, spiritual messaging. And right. you can see it in most traditions where they talk about allegories and metaphors where they're hinting towards something because the thing itself cannot be accurately described in words because we just yeah. don't have that capacity or perhaps it's an impossible thing to do. Yeah. Um, perhaps it transcends language and articulation and it's really a felt sense is all it ever can be. I agree. I, I, um, coming back to that, you were talking about the heart, um, mm -hmm. because the retreat I went to the teacher, all he taught was heart centered meditation, but mm -hmm. there's so much more to heart centered meditation. And, and he taught, he says the heart chakra is unique, uh, because its job is to unify the upper chakras, which he sometimes called heaven and mm -hmm. the lower chakras, which he sometimes called earth. And the heart center being the seat of unconditional love, he used to say the heart center loves and unifies. It loves the body and it loves the mind. It mm -hmm. loves the soul and it loves the spirit. It loves the masculine. It loves the feminine. It loves yin and yang and dark and light and all the opposite you could think of. The heart's function is to unify all of those. Hmm. And, um, and so, um, um, and to me, in my heart center, when it's open, if I were to use words to describe the feeling, it feels like overwhelming gratitude. Hmm. And, and yet I can't always say what I'm grateful for. It just feels like gratitude. It's interesting because that feeling is something that uh, many people experience, but describe it in different ways. Yeah. Right. And yeah. again, it's this insufficiency of language. Um, for me, it, it, it's a feeling of connectedness, Yeah, right? It, it's just that feeling of everything is, as you say, unified, which I think is actually a beautiful word to use because mm -hmm. I've never thought about it in that sense, in terms of unification of opposites, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's 
quite Jungian actually, which is cool. Um, right. He spoke a lot about synchronicity too, just incidentally. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like yeah it's that gratitude and you're not exactly grateful for anything but maybe you're grateful for everything right at the same time and it's not specific but it's also general and all-encompassing uh and or it's connected and it's not connected to anything in particular but everything as a whole right and it's really something else and uh you know heart-centered meditation um that's one of my favorites to do uh, personally. And, uh, it also, for me, I use it also in terms of compassion training, right? Like I'm working on developing uh, a compassionate mind and a much more compassionate self and approach to the world. And the way to do that for me, at least is through the heart. Um, now, technically speaking, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but no, I think imagistically, you, yeah, you know. Yeah, I uh, if I were to highlight two things that have come about uh, as I've taken this journey into the heart, uh, one would be compassion, yeah, and it continues to this day. Uh, it's almost like some part of me is not allowed to get mad at Donald Trump anymore. <laughs> yeah, and if I get a little too one-sided about something, here comes the dream through the heart. And, um, you know, in my book, I had two or three chapters about dreams. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I say dreams, sometimes it's visions that come to me when I'm in heart-centered meditation. And it wants to show me everybody deserves compassion. John, you deserve compassion. And I probably had a tendency to look to people above me, people in power, as not worthy of compassion, or I just at least I never considered it. And yeah. dream after dream would come through. Uh, yeah, I had dreams that were so real. It's like Barack Obama and I were best friends. Uh, dreams with Donald Trump. Dreams with a couple of spiritual teachers. I had one dream that was so real with the Dalai Lama. I couldn't even believe it. And I remember mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama came and took off his robes and his glasses. And he was just this tiny little Asian man. <laughs> it was so real. And, um, yeah. and, you know, Dalai Lama is a beautiful living example of, of compassion. Yeah. And so part of the journey into the heart center has been compassion. And, you know, I think the it's hard to put into words the tendency to want to be of service in the world. Uh, it took me a long time to just realize that just holding another person in love and compassion is a service. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody needs food, clothing, shelter. A lot of people do, but just holding people in compassion is, is a form of service. And it's really empowering to the other person. Instead of trying to fix them, change them, save them, rescue them, tell them that, you know, solve all their problems, just holding them in a space of unconditional love and compassion. It's miraculous how people will, you know, solve their own problems that way. Yeah, And so I'm, it's something I'm still learning, Shane, but it's been a beautiful thing that's grown in me over the last 20 years. Yeah. And, and it's, it's one of the foundations of psychotherapy, right? Yeah. Is this ability to listen with unconditional positive regard and mm-hmm. compassion. Um, yeah. Rogers, I think was the unconditional positive regard who came up with it and compassion's come subsequently, but they're yeah. not separate. And uh, you know what it allows a person to do is to safely express themselves and to feel their feelings or 
go through an event that happened to them in the past or that's happening to them right now yeah. in a way that they don't have to prove anything right and it's a way of processing things yeah. and you as a therapist you reflect back to them uh, what right. they're feeling so that sort of communicates that you understand and that you're in it with them right i mean it's yeah. not your experience but you're there with them and for them and that it's safe to do so and that by itself is just remarkably transformational now perhaps it's not exactly enough but uh it, it goes a long way and it does yeah yeah and the compassion piece you know what's interesting so there's this field of therapy called compassion focused therapy which i'm i'm fascinated with and uh, it's very much about this and developing compassion because uh, particularly self-compassion because most people are quite good at giving compassion to others but are not good at being compassionate towards themselves yeah um, which is really interesting but basically there's like three types of compassion there's compassion for others from others and for yourself right right and uh, people have different levels of strength in each of those regions but really self-compassion is the main one that people struggle with because we're so often caught up in criticizing ourselves and judging ourselves and demanding things and uh you know that part of us that says it's not good enough or you need to do yeah. better or this was not enough when it, and it never is right and it's like that doesn't even really help uh in the long run right and we don't even give ourselves the space to feel our own feelings a lot of the time yeah. because we're too busy criticizing ourselves for either the things we've done or haven't done or <laughs> worried about what's going to happen or not going to happen uh, and it's just a mental chaos right um yeah uh, two things are, i'd like to comment about that um so yeah, in michael creighton's story of him going to the retreat Oh, but the halfway through the treat, the brew, the teacher said, now go out to the desert, find a, a tree or bush that you feel comfortable with, sit down, and I want you to meditate on self-love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Michael Creighton wandered around for hours, and he, every time he sat down, he just he couldn't do it. He goes, it wasn't too hard to give love to other people. I literally couldn't sit. I goes, it was so hard. I gave up. I just couldn't do it. Um, so yeah, sometimes loving other people is not so difficult, but loving ourselves, compassion for ourselves. But there's a... Um, you know, some really interesting research being done uh, with MDMA, you know, the mm -hmm. drug ecstasy. And there's a movie, um, I can't remember the name, uh, documentary, it's done in Israel. Um, and what they've learned is uh, they are working with people with PTSD and, uh, and it only takes one, two or three sessions with the MDMA. But what the MDMA does was it, it, it creates a field of what feels like love and compassion. And when they're in that love and compassion, those horrific memories bubble up and the mind is able to recontextualize them. In other words, see the experience differently. And yeah. uh, I think that's what takes place, but maybe not as quickly as it does with MDMA, with heart-centered meditation, with regular attention to that heart center, that space of unconditional love and compassion. It starts to recontextualize how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see the world. Some people it happens very quickly, some people more slowly, but it does, uh, I like the word recontextualize. It's sort mm -hmm. of like you look back at your past and you see it differently. And it can be something as simple as, like we talked about looking back at the past, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of people have experienced a lot of pain, suffering, abuse, abandonment, you know, and it's sometimes hard to look back on that with compassion, with compassion for me, the person going through it, compassion for 
the bad guys that did these terrible things to me. Yeah. But it can happen. It's just a different state of consciousness. And, and if you're willing to take the journey, it will transform you. And one's no better, no worse than the other. But uh, it's sort of like the heart center is a drug that's free to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you just it, have it, to hang out one. there. It is a good one. Yeah. So how, I remember. How, yeah, go ahead. I was to say, I remember when I first started, you know, he taught me you know, putting your hands over your heart center. And he goes, I want you to touch the body with reverence as if you are the beloved touching the beloved. Mm -hmm. And I remembered that feeling of like my entire body going, yes, yeah, thank you, finally. And it was the strangest feeling like, what the hell? And and part of what happened spending time in the heart center was um, I have more body awareness than ever before. And so it's like what I would call me and my body are kind of in sync in a way we've never been before. Mm -hmm. But I think Brew would say yes, because the heart center, it loves the body. It loves the mind. It loves your rational mind and it loves your expansive mind. It loves all of it. And he always emphasized that um, the journey into the heart is really the journey into the wholeness and journey into wholeness is really has a practical aspect because you're far more resourceful in every single situation. Yes. And you're able to regulate yourself a lot better. Right? Yeah. You don't yeah. get overwhelmed by things. You don't, yep. things don't worry as much. Your natural bodily reactions and responses you can handle most of the time. Um, yeah. Trauma still you're happens, right. but that's okay. Uh, yeah. Because then you can deal with that better. Yeah. I, there's a great um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the guy that you know hung out with the Beatles and founded Transcendental Meditation. He talked about uh, in the journey of consciousness, he goes, you know, we all have scars and woundings. Um, and he said, but as you journey along what I, I'm going to try and describe this, right? Imagine having a, let's say a, a knife or a set of car keys. And, uh, you know, here comes the wound or the pain. And there's like a deep gouge in the, in a piece of wood. Mm. And um, that's going to take a long time to heal. But as you go along, now comes another wound is, is your consciousness expands, that, that sense of trust and unconditional love grows. Here comes the wound again. And now it's more like taking that knife or your car keys and dragging it through some sand. That's a little easier to get back to normal, to heal. And then you go a little further and it's like now taking that knife and running it through a lake or a pond. It's still going to create ripples, still going to hurt, but it quickly gets back to calm again. And eventually you get to the point where the wounds are like, you know, dragging that knife or your set of car keys through the air. Yeah. And so the pain's still there, the suffering's still there, but it's like uh, moving through the stages. You move through the stages quicker. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, it's a process, right? Like this is the something that is hard to contend with a lot of time is because we think we want things to happen quickly because we're oftentimes desperate for it. And sometimes yeah. they do. There's these magical transformative moments, but also right. it can take many years. Right? right. And one way to think about it is, you know, if you have a person who's, uh, let's say never worked out in their whole life, they don't eat healthy food. Um, they're overweight and they're like, I don't know, 35 or 40 years old. And they're like, I want to be super fit and athletic. Right. Yeah. And you go, okay, well, that's going to take you a couple of years to reach this yeah. ideal that you're going for. You can do it, but yeah. it's going to take a lot to get there. Uh, and similarly with this kind of a practice, 
I think it's best to think about it in those terms. Like this is a long-term commitment that I'm making to achieve something in the end. Now you'll see results along the way, right? Yeah. And you'll have these experiences along the way, but to expect, you know, after one or 10, 20 meditations to suddenly be enlightened or <laughs> whatever, perfectly at peace, <laughs> it's like you're setting yourself up for disappointment, right? And not yeah. every session is going to be great. Sometimes you're yeah. going to have to force yourself to do it for five, 10, whatever, however long you allocate yourself time to meditate. Um, but to think about it in terms of like, well, I've lived my whole life without this, right? I'm actually retraining my brain and my body in a way that takes hundreds or thousands of repetitions to actually become a default setting. Uh, just like it would be to recondition your entire body to become athletic from a non-athletic existence. Right. Um, it takes time and that's hard to accept, but it's, it's something that, you know, is, is worth pursuing. I totally agree with what you're saying. And if, if there was two things I wish I would have been told at the very beginning of the journey 20 years ago, one yeah. was, John, you might change, but the habits in your brain haven't changed yet. Yeah. And so I, I literally feel sometimes like my brain is always playing catch up to me. And that mm. sounds kind of silly, but that's how I feel all the time. I've changed, but my habits haven't changed yet. And that does take willpower and consistency. And um, <clears throat> so I, I sometimes feel like um, my body and my brain are playing catch up to me, whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, the second part, I I have very much a mind that's got a you know, here's the task, complete the task. Yes. Here's the task, complete the task. Yes. But in my uh, experience, there's no end to this journey. Mm -hmm. There are plateaus. There are dark nights. There's great illuminations. Uh, there's a sense of feeling like you've arrived, and then that <laughs> sense goes away. <laughs> and so, I uh, I I. You know, not saying that the that the individual who realizes enlightenment hasn't found the end of the road, um, but I think for most of us, most of the time, uh, the journey never ends. And yeah. you know, if you look at it in the big picture, you know, if it's true, we really are immortal. And who knows how many lifetimes we've had before this time, this lifetime. Um, there is no end. And that's, that's been a hard one for me to adjust to like, ah, have I arrived yet? Have yeah. I made it yet? You know, because when you arrive and you settle in, let's just say to a new life view, a new God view, a new uh, state of consciousness, that's kind of anchored. It becomes the new normal. You settle yeah. in, it's cool. And then after a while, there's this sort of compulsion, like, I don't think this is the end, you know? And, I love, you know, Adya Shante's written some really nice books on enlightenment and, and he described many times, like I'm here, I've arrived. No, I don't think my understanding's complete yet. Yeah. And then, you know, years go by. Okay. Now, boy, I've got it now. No, I don't think that's it yet. You know? So, um, but that's I, a that, natural thing, right? Yeah. Because our brains are wired that way to yeah. go after activities and, achieve something and that's achieve when we get a goal rewarded. yeah 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 exactly. a goal is exactly the word i was looking for yeah <laughs> and we're wired to do that because yeah. that's how we made it this far and survived yeah. um and it's like developed unbelievable civilizations right that we live in right um i mean our ability to do that is partly why we're even able to have this conversation 
and so that's not going away, right? Yeah. And the feeling of it's not quite enough or I want more, I don't know that that ever really goes away, but that's okay, yeah. right? Like you're saying is it's like, well, if you know this and the earlier on that you figure it out, the less suffering you'll go through trying to <laughs> wrestle with it. But if yeah. you can really accept the fact that there is no end and yeah. that you'll constantly be pushing for more and more, um, that's okay because then at least you can accept and revere each point in the journey, yeah. right? As opposed to being like, it's not enough. Um, I don't care what it is now because it needs to be more. It needs to be better. I need to be yeah. better. I need to know more, be more, do more. Um, it's relatively unhelpful for the in the moment experience, which is all that you have anyway. It's exactly. good too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like go for things, aim high, right. Yeah. And try achieve the greatest that you can imagine. Cause why not? Right. What else yeah. are you going to do with your life? Yeah. But, uh, know that like, there's always going to be your, as you move the end goal moves. And so you're never going to get there. You're just going to reach milestones along the way and then you die. <laughs> and then <laughs> And then you do it again. <laughs> and then you do but, it you again. Know, yeah, exactly. Another uh, thing that was challenging for me on the journey is uh, I, I never had a, a problem with will or willpower or setting mm. goals or achieving goals or having the energy and the desire to achieve them. But um, I would say, you know, I, I want to say one of the realizations on the journey is that I as I know myself to be, I'm going to call that me, the personality, my ego. Uh, there's a time and a place for the will. There's a time and place for pushing. But if I were being honest with myself, everything cool that ever happened to me, I didn't make happen. Mm -hmm. and, I, and so this is where I'm, I'm going to say, uh, you know, at its, at our core, we're all souls. And but we're not, and the soul is actually behind everything, and probably even behind that, what you might call God is behind yeah. everything. And so, but because most of us, myself included, are not entirely conscious of everything that's going on, um, and so part of the trust and part of the faith and part of the surrender is you know, when it's time, you know, I, there's like a divine timing, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think. I don't think it's the will where somebody goes, I need to wake up. There's something deeper than you that's waking up and you as the body slash ego slash mind are playing catch up to that. Right. And does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot that happens. I mean, you know, to really get into it, it's like, well, where do your thoughts even come from? Right. They come from your <laughs> and like they come from your unconscious right, right. they are, they arrive in your conscious mind and so yeah. you didn't get to choose what thoughts you have right yeah. you never really do um as much as we sort of think we do um and that causes some problems for like the discussion about free will and things like that and yeah but practically speaking you have to operate as if you're having your thoughts and you're making decisions because that's yeah. how life works so there's no argument there but from a much deeper perspective I think that you're right. It's like you get some control in your life, but by and large, you don't have control and things happen to you. And yeah. in order, even the things that you put great effort towards achieving, so many other things have to happen exactly right in order for that to be the case, or at least not go horrendously wrong. 
in order for you to even achieve that, that it's so mesmerizing to think about, right? Yeah. Because without so many other factors that you couldn't possibly know of or control, you aren't getting to whatever goal you're achieving, right? Even, even if you think about something like, you know, you take, you, you walk 10 steps. I mean, firstly, we don't know how we walk, right? We just know how to walk, but we don't control every muscle contraction, exactly what's happening, how our brain manages to know what the right size of step to take is, you know, <laughs> like how to avoid objects. Like, especially this is obvious when you climb stairs, right? How you know exactly how to climb stairs. And then as soon as the stairs, like a few millimeters off, you trip because you weren't expecting it. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and then you get frustrated, but it's like, that's because your brain's doing so much in the background, calculating stuff that it doesn't have time for, to even look at those tiny details. Cause it just assumes things. And so the analogy I was making was that, um, there's far more to what goes on, even when we do strive to achieve things that it's worth appreciating how much broader it goes right yeah it's very i i it's very humbling i mean i actually i i used to um there's real humility and there's sort of false humility and i i don't think you can take the journey uh like i have as others i know and not feel humbled uh and realize I have a lot less control than I ever thought I did. And, and it's, it's a delicate dance. And a lot of people have asked me about synchronicity and, um, and uh, you know, one of the more popular things that everybody, you know, how can I manifest things? How can I manifest things? And there are, are certain laws or rules for how to manifest things in your life. But I think the people that manifest things easily it's because their ego is aligned with their soul. And mm. so I always preach, you know, whatever that looks like for you, you know, um, even in, in AA, you know, one of the steps is, uh, I think, turning your life over to God as you understand him. Mm-hmm. There's something there about alignment that's, uh, I think, is important for people. Like, literally, I think if they were to pray and say, I want me, as I know myself to be, this ego personality, to be in alignment with my soul. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know my soul has a desire, but I might not be conscious of what that is. I'm not be, you know, and, and the more you can put yourself in alignment with that greater part of you or the greater picture, uh, the more things start to flow easily. And, you know, I've had a lot of interesting precognitive dreams, which just flips me out. Like, how can you, you know, I, I share a chapter near the end of my book. So true story. Um, I had met, she's my wife now, but I was dating her. Um, this was early 2019. And um, she said, Hey, you should go see my, um, my naturopath, you know, and it's true. I hadn't had a full physical or a checkup in like a decade. So I was like, mm. okay, I'll go, you know, yeah. So, and one of the things to do, because I'm a 63-year-old man, is they test uh, men's testosterone level. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, and she was, and so anyway, so I gave blood, saliva, urine, wait a week, go back, meet her for the results. And three days before my meeting with her, and mind you, I've never met her before, I have this hyper-vivid dream 
where uh, she, I'm in the doctor's office and I see her in another adjacent room, put on like a lab coat. And she walks up to me with my results, like on a clipboard and she's reading them. She goes, well, you definitely don't need the pellets, which is mm -hmm. what they give for testosterone. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, your testosterone level looks great. And, um, and so, um, and so, and she looked like a brown hair, you know, 50 something Middle Eastern woman. And so three days later, I meet Dr. Kimi I in person. Oh my God, Shane, everything played out exactly. I see her in the other room. I see her put on the lab coat. I see her walk up with the clipboard. I know what she's going to say. And she says, well, you definitely don't need the pellets. <laughs> and <laughs> the weird thing is everything in the dream was identical, except her hair was blonde. Mm. And I later I went and told the story to my wife and she goes, wait, Dr. Kimi, I dyed her hair. Just in the last three days between I and I had the dream and when she actually met, she dyed her hair blonde. Wow. And so this is the magical thing. If That's you, crazy. as a nurse, have to be in alignment with the bigger picture. And if I'm going to, I almost hate to use this word. If we assume that God is behind everything, whatever mm -hmm. that is, that if you're in alignment with that, then you would actually be able to see how things are playing out. And um you know, I've had a number of dreams like that. They're very random. I never know when they're going to come. They don't seem to have any specific, you know, other than wink, wink, John, you know, you think you're in, in control and charge or anything, yeah. but they're really not. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's, I, I tell people that want to experience more synchronicity in life. I said, the first step I would do is say, I want to be in alignment with whatever you'd call it. God, the soul, you know, you came in. A lot of people feel like the soul came in with a plan. There's certain things mm. they wanted to learn and experience. Um, and, um, and I, as I know myself to be, want to be in alignment with that and then watch what happens, but hang on because <laughs> yeah. you don't know what that might be. And if you are in alignment with that, um, you know, it's interesting. I have books appear to me, books that have, I can't find on Amazon. So I, sometimes I think, I think I'm supposed to write these books. And one of the most recent ones that appeared to me was a book called Undivided Movement. Hmm. And, and I, that's my conclusion. There's, a, there's an ego, let's say, the me, that wants to do one thing and a soul maybe that wants to do another. And what would it like to not have any division anymore where there's just you uh, and there's no inner conflict anymore? Full alignment. Full alignment, yeah. Yeah, alignment is the word I was looking for. It's like, you yeah. want more synchronicity? You need to be in alignment with the greater you. And I don't know what that's going to look like. And you probably don't either. But if, if you ask for it, hang on. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you advise someone to start that process, right? How do you even begin to align yourself? Well, I think, um, I think sincerity is a really, really, really important quality in the journey. And so if there's like a sincerity, it comes from the depths of your being to want to be in alignment with that, you ask for it. It's that simple. You ask for it sincerely. Uh, you know, it might feel like prayer for others. Mm. It might be, I want to meditate on alignment. Uh, but I think it begins with a sincere ask. Um, you know, it's really interesting there's a, a lady named Lorna Byrne, an Irish mystic, and she's written some really fascinating books that just kind of blow your mind. I mean, she's one of these people that grew up uh, communicating with angels and seeing angels, uh, you know, from the earliest childhood and does to mm -hmm. this day. 
And she says, every single individual without fail has an angel, a guardian angel with them. And some people might call them your guide or your guides and, you know, and she sees them. And, um, and she said, there are millions of, she called them unemployed angels out there just dying to help, but nobody ever asks. Mm-hmm. Nobody even thinks to ask. And so um, I, I, I'm coming back to that alignment. I think it just begins with a heartfelt, sincere ask. And then, and then stay open. Uh, your life might be turned upside down or it might be very subtle changes. It's hard to really know. But um, I, I do believe that saying, be careful what you ask for. If you ask sincerely, it might take your life in a whole different direction. Right. And, um, but yeah, that, that alignment, I think, is a really important piece. And I, uh, what I'm getting is that the sincere asking is not asking for something, right? Yeah. Because it, because it's very easy to be like, okay, I want my life to be in alignment so that I can have all this money and love and all these kinds of things. And then you're just sort of like thinking about how you want it to be aligned, right? right? As opposed to saying, I just want to be in alignment, whatever that looks like. And I accept that, whatever that may be, knowing that that's in my best interest in the long run, right? Yeah. As you say, it might cause, you might end up, in complete turmoil for a while <laughs> before things yeah. stabilize. Um, yeah. Or, but it could be the opposite too. Yeah. I, I really don't know. Um, but there's something beautiful about that, that surrender, that humility, that alignment. Um, and I, I think people do that, but I think they, that sincere ask usually comes when they're in the pit of hell mm-hmm. and that's when the sincere, but I, I think people can do it every day. I would, I would preach that to people every day. What is it that your unique soul wants to learn, experience, teach, share more than anything else? Put yourself in alignment with that. And it's a beautiful thing and, and see where it takes you. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And that's great advice. And, you know, and, and I like that you say, you don't, I don't know, you don't know what it's going to be, but just yeah. go for it. Right. Yeah. And also that in whatever way works for you, right? It's not that there's a practice of like, you have to do this ritual of like, bang, 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 bang. Like maybe you, not you specifically, but maybe one does, right? So you have to find the ritual or the way that works for you. So maybe it's through prayer. Maybe it's through meditation. Maybe it's just a moment of silence in your, in your mind and, you know, with your hand on your heart or whatever it may be, or maybe it's journaling. Like, I don't know, like there's so many ways that you can go about it. You just have to figure out what works for you. And would you say that the best way to know if something's a good method for you is by the way that it feels when you're doing it? Yeah. um, Well, think, first of all, I, again, this is just me. I would say start with a sincere ask, then the practice might reveal itself the next mm-hmm. day. It might reveal itself in a dream. It might, you know, suddenly your best friend just calls you and says, oh my God, I got this workshop I, I want to go to. And it just, your, your whole body is just tinkling, you know? Um, I, I think start with a sincere ask and then see what the practice is. Mm-hmm. And it may be a number of different practices. It may be heart-centered meditation for a year and then, nothing for a while. Uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of interesting stories of people that literally almost left the world for months at a time, you know, meditating for hours a day. And then it was like life said, okay, now we're going to take you back out into the world again. Yeah. And so, um, 
I don't, I don't, I, I would hesitate to say what the practice would be. I would start with at, make the sincere ask and then see what's revealed afterwards. Mm-hmm. And pay attention, right? It, yes. With, with trust and faith, like there's an openness, like, you know, yeah. and it, it might not be real. It might be revealed in a minute and it could be over the course of a year where there's just subtle changes. I just don't know. But I, I think there's something really beautiful about that alignment. Seek the alignment first. You know, I think that's what Jesus said when he said, seek first the kingdom and then mm-hmm. all will be given to you. And I think people do that, but only when things suck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I give up. Yeah. yeah. You know, just I want to be alignment. I'm not I'm not gonna fight anymore. I just I just surrender. But there's something wonderfully freakishly empowering about surrender. Because mm-hmm. uh, you're not surrendering, giving up, you're surrendering, I think, into the greater part of yourself that was there all along mm-hmm. and aligning yourself with that. Yeah, it's not a giving up. It's a surrendering to great to something greater than yourself. Right. Right. And letting that take precedence. Yeah. Which is difficult because our minds don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> and maybe the reason why we have we many people only end up doing it in suffering is because your mind will try everything it can to sort it out itself until yeah. it can't anymore. And then you're then you reach a point where you're like, okay, you know. I, I can't do it anymore. I surrender. Right. I, I, I give in. I totally agree. And, you know, if you look at some of the more well-known uh, celebrity spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie, there's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. They went through a period of hell. And uh, I don't think it was, I think Eckhart Tolle described it was like my ego was so miserable. It just pulled the plug on itself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. A, he talks yeah. about it. it uh, when, it, it was like a sort of self-suicide. Well, yeah. suicide self, but um, it was an, an ego suicide, right? As exactly. opposed to a, a physical, he didn't act it out. Yeah. 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 Uh, Byron Katie tells similar story. You, know, like, you didn't even want to be around her for a long time. She was an angry woman. And Eckhart Tolle mm. was full of self-loathing and self-hatred that was just overwhelming. And, you know, Eckhart, you know, he has that cute little smile. He likes to say, yeah. oh, you're not enlightened. You're just not suffering enough. <laughs> yeah, and his story is great because uh, he, like you said, he spent many years just meditating. Basically, he talks yeah. about it, you know, being in in the present moment or the beingness, and he was homeless and yeah, whatever for many many years. And then one day he was like, oh, he it, he just sort of found himself as a spiritual teacher, and now he tours the world. I mean, he's got a very yeah. busy schedule. <laughs> like he's not a. Yeah. It's not a monk just chilling anymore. Um, he's really in the world now again. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Michael Singer wrote, a, you know, I think he just wrote his third book, but he wrote uh, The Untethered Soul. And I liked his book, uh, The Surrender Experiment, which is sort mm-hmm. of his autobiography. And he had, a, you know, this is what I say too, what I would call awakening um, spiritual experiences. Sometimes they come when they come and he was not cultivating it. It just happened. Just and happened, suddenly, yeah. Yeah, suddenly he realized he was, as he put it in there, watching the busy thoughts in his mind, you know, and he, it was such a shocking shift. And anyway, he, um, but the peace that he was in was so enormous. All he wanted to get do was get rid of that chattering noise in his mind. Like he really separated himself from the mind where so many of us get like caught up in the thoughts. He was, it was so obvious to him that he wasn't his thoughts. And so he spent 
and he he was going to school, getting his doctorate in economics, and uh, more or less dropped out and lived in a van at the edge of the woods and would meditate and uh, you know do postures for I think six eight hours a day, hmm. day after day after day. And I think he was trying to anchor and hang on to that peace that he felt. But then came a dream that said another way, and it's time to go back out into the world again. Can you hang on to that peace and presence as you go back out into the world? Yeah. And I think that's the story for a lot of people. Something happens. Uh, traditionally, they go to the woods, the cave, the monastery, the ashram. It gets anchored. And then life says, okay, now can you carry this peace out into the world with you? That's the challenge. Yeah. And all he like, did all sorts yeah. of things with his life after that. So, yeah. And, you know, but all of these teachers, I mean, had they not come back to the world, we would never have had their teachings. They would have yeah. just lived and, and died eventually you know, just by themselves doing their own thing and they wouldn't have shared this great wisdom. So yeah. by all accounts, it was the right move. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I love some of those stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, listen, John, this has been really fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'll include all stuff in the description, but please promote what you've got to promote. Where can people find you and your book and your stuff? Yeah. Uh, my name is John David Latta. Last name is L-A-T-T-A. -T -T -A, and my book is called The Synchronicity of Love, Stories That Heal, Transform, and Awaken. It's 119 short, true, and mostly true stories. The last 20 years of my life, a lot of uh, wild and interesting and unexpected spiritual experiences. At the same time, I was a single dad raising two kids. And so I, I really wanted to, um, you know, show that I went through my own experience. Uh, inner journey while living a regular life too. Mm. Um, and I, I call the book, the synchronicity of love, because for me, the more I stay with love and unconditional love and compassion, the heart center, the more uh, life starts to unfold sort of miraculously in coincidental ways that my math mind still can't figure out. And, uh, and miracles happen over and over and over again. Okay. So the book is on Amazon.com. I just checked this out today. I didn't know this. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target.com, Walmart.com. I, I sold a lot more places than I knew it was being sold. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I highly encourage everyone to get it. It's a great read. Um, and I thank you for being here. And uh, I look forward to doing it again soon. Uh, thank you so much, Shane. I really appreciate the invitation. All right. Take care, John.